Hi there, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. This is episode 592 for the 23rd of March, 2022. Vocalist Michael Mayo is a dazzling interpreter, improviser, and musician. He comes from brilliant musical stock in the form of his parents, Scott Mayo and Valerie Pinkston. Scott is currently Sergio Mendes' musical director, and Valerie has lent her vocals to artists ranging from Whitney Houston to Diana Ross. But this is about Michael, and he'll tell us more about his parents during the course of our conversation. Michael grew up in Los Angeles, studied at the New England Conservatory and the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz Performance. I know that's no longer what it's called. And now he lives in New York. He's recorded with Ben Wendell, performed with Shy Maestro and toured with Herbie Hancock. His much anticipated debut album, Bones, came out on Mac Avenue Records in 2021 and it didn't disappoint. Here's our conversation. In time, maybe I can find a life alive in open doors Engrossed in chords, the known is more misleading I've grown with the unknown in me The tale is quick to tell itself Given the chance, your health is in my hands You've put my words on a pedestal You wanna get closer to me, but you need a remedy the drama between you and you You wanna get closer to me But you need a remedy For all of the drama between you and you You wanna get closer to me But you need a remedy For all of the drama between you and you You wanna get closer to me But you need a remedy For all of the drama between you and you Michael, hi, and welcome to the Jazz Session. Hello, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to speak to you, such a treat. I know so many people who are fans, and I'm also hoping that if there's anybody who isn't aware of your music and your latest album, that they're going to listen to this interview and fall in love. Let's hope. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I should say we're here primarily, we're going to discuss your latest album, Bones, your debut album, which came out in June 2021 on Mac Avenue Records. But I think before we get to the album, I'd love to give listeners some background context for you, particularly in how you grew up with two parents who are very much musically inclined, working musicians and high caliber ones at that. So can you tell us a little bit about Scott Mayo and Valerie Pinkston? Sure, so uh, both of my parents, like you said, are professional musicians. So I grew up going with them to gigs and rehearsals and and sessions and stuff. So 
um, I was kind of raised in an environment of working musicians and seeing them interact with people musically in a lot of different styles. Um, you know, my mom has sung with, she sings with Diana Ross, she sang with Whitney Houston, Luther Vandross, like the list goes on and on. My dad uh, played with Earth, Wind and Fire. He's currently Sergio Mendez's music director. He played on American Idol. They've both done a lot of like very fancy type things. Um, but when you're growing up, you don't realize that it's fancy. When you're growing up, what you have around you is sort of you take it as given, right? So, um, I, yeah, I was I was very fortunate enough to never doubt the possibility of somebody having someone having a successful career in music. It was always sort of like that was the first model I had of like a successful career was one in music. So I was definitely very fortunate in that regard. They must have stories. They must have so many stories. Oh, so many stories. So many oh stories. And like, I always think that I have a handle on like all the stories, but then like at holidays, they'll like dust off some new stories. I'm like, I've never heard that before. Diana Ross did what? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that must be amazing. Well, I was very touched by their feature on your album, firstly, mm -hmm. because it was unexpected. It occurs on the closing track of the album. The song is called Hold On. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of beautiful gem, this sort of, offering right at the end i kind of likened it to having a really nice like espresso at the end mm -hmm. of a good meal um but it is really poignant because they're your parents and you also i think i heard your mother's voice first and i was like is that michael's voice is that, is that? Is that a falsetto <laughs> or is that a woman right. and immediately i was like i went to the liner notes and i was like wait 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 well, who's this <laughs> and it's lovely it is it's this short song i think it's like one minute 42 or something, long or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah so can you tell us just about um singing with your folks on hold on yeah so that song is really special to me i um so we recorded the album in new york and both of my parents live in la so we did that remotely and it's funny because this is doing remote things now feels so normal but this is like way before covid so then it was like oh we're doing this and we're not even in the same place um i knew from the get-go when i decided to make the project that i needed to have my parents on something um but I didn't really know what that was going to be or how it was going to take shape. And then when we got in the studio, I knew I had to sort of carve aside a time for that. And so this was my first like album under my own name. So I was sort of um, acting in a capacity that I was less familiar with. And so I was suffice to say, I was like very stressed. <laughs> and so I called my mom, I called, I called my parents. I'm like, guys, I really want to have you on a song, but I don't know, like there's so much going on. We're still tracking and we're still like, you know, doing overdubs and stuff. Um, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen. And my mom was like, well, do you have the melody? I'm like, yes, sent it to them. She's like, do you mind if I take a crack at the words? I'm like, no, I don't mind. I couldn't mind less, like, please. <laughs> um, so she wrote the words for the first half of the song. And immediately when it came, it felt so right um and you know she both of my parents are musicians but first and foremost for me they're my parents so like the the, the song is basically a letter from a parent to a child saying that when you're unsure when there are these things in your life that feel overwhelming that if you have love to rely on to fall back on then like everything's gonna be fine basically and so now whenever i listen to that song i always get a little bit tear i've actually challenged myself to not get teary-eyed when i listen to it and it, genuinely doesn't work <laughs> god that's so gorgeous and so special and so lucky for you to get to do that with them yeah it's it's definitely a nice little um uh a nice little emblem of of that time, time on 
obviously you learned a lot about music through your folks and kind of through living it to some degree, but you were also formally trained, you studied at the New England Conservatory in Boston, and after that you were accepted into, it's now called the Herbie Hancock Institute of Jazz, it was called the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. You're the third vocalist to be accepted, following in the footsteps of someone who was a friend of the jazz session, Gretchen Parlato. Can you share a single takeaway from time at NEC, time at the Hancock Institute, something that kind of sums up the role that each of those schools played in your development? Yeah, I would say NEC was um, about sort of expanding my horizons to new types of music that I didn't really know of or hadn't really listened to. And through that exposure, sort of forging my own path of like musical identity or starting to ask myself these deeper questions that, you know, when you're a high schooler, you don't really feel the need to ask. Um, and then when I got to the Institute, that was about um, really diving into the craft of being an improviser and a composer and learning how to function on uh, in a group setting playing the music of a lot of different people um, and trying to find sort of what is the through line of my musicality throughout this and how can I best um, do what I do in order to bring life to like the little dots of ink on this page, essentially. And um, I'd say that both of them really helped me forge um, the musical identity that I sort of am having now these days. Um, but they were a little bit different in that regard. Like NEC was more about like starting the path and the Institute was more about like sort of looking around and getting the lay of the land and like then going out into the world. Well, it brings me to my next question, which is that your aesthetic on Bones is so impressive in its clarity, in its mm. apparent surety. And it's, I mean, that's an incredibly mature thing. And even if future albums display other facets of your musical personality, your likes, your dislikes, as a record, Bones is really forthright in showcasing your sound and your preferences as they exist now, right? So you've come out of those two institutions, you've absorbed a huge amount, and then you've kind of sloughed off the excess and carved out this niche, the sound for yourself. Did So I guess in some ways you kind of answered this, but this cohesiveness, what was the process like for you in getting to this point? Because I think it's so valuable to hear you talk about your time at NEC and your, your time at the Institute. A lot of musicians who study jazz think, well, just by virtue of the fact that I'm getting a formal training in this, I'll, you know, I'll come out of it four years later and I'll no, be fully no, formed. Yeah, the work yeah. actually starts afterwards and it's and it's hard. And yeah. I must say, you know, I think for some people like yourself, it, look, it fits your musical shtick fits you like a glove <laughs> so it makes an outsider think oh that must have been really easy he was kind of <laughs> you know sprung from the womb like right. this so what was that being in it what was that process like for you yeah it's so interesting that you say that because like i definitely you know it took years for me to figure out what sort of music i wanted to make um and i think that there is this unfortunate dichotomy that we create it's false but we, we create it between uh interest like the things that interest you and then the the number of things that you're like allowed to do 
right? Because unfortunately, it all comes back down to like capitalism and branding and all of these wonderful, wonderful, quote unquote, things um, that like, you know, I believe serve a purpose in terms of like sorting. And like, if, if I really like a Lauren Hill record, and I've never heard anything like that before, then it would kind of suck if I got recommended in like an opera album after that, right? You know what I mean? Like, if I want to hear something similar, it makes sense for genre labels to exist so that I can find something similar, right? But I think for me, a long, a, a large part of the process was learning how to allow that to actually not be relevant in the creation process um, and sort of allow myself to believe that there's a place for that, but that place is not right now. Um, and, you know, I think moving back to LA also had a lot to do with um, sort of that change in aesthetic for me. I think when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, um, I was doing a lot more sort of like jazz, not only jazz, but it was like very much like jazz. Um, and then when I moved back to LA, suddenly I was thrust into these like R&B neo soul settings. And, you know, I started playing with this band Shrek is Love, or I, I should say we created this band. And then yeah, I started listening to, you know, Moonchild more and D'Angelo and Erica Badu and Brand all, all these people. And I'm like, wait, there really is no difference between the way that a person expresses themselves musically and like like a neo soul setting versus a jazz setting it's the same inner nugget of like human spirit it's just sort of like realized differently so for me it was just sort of like i don't really want to care about these boundaries as long as something feels like it resonates with me i think i can be that common thread and then it'll feel honest right so that to me is a large part of the process of making this record is um how can i express myself honestly and like trust that there will be cohesion in that just inherently. Well, it worked. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I think I think it worked. And the other thing that I really adore and gives me so much to hold on to when I'm listening to this is there's a lot of complexity in the harmonies and the rhythmic devices in the grooves. Um, and a great example of this, and every time I hear it, I squeal with glee because it just gives me so much joy is you and you which has the course of a pop song. It is a hook. It is so memorable. And you just want to sing along, you know, get in a car, roll down the windows and sing along. Um, but when you sing the chorus, and folks will hear it on this, so on this show, you sing the first line. And when it repeats, you've modulated, I think, which has changed key um, down a half step. And then you return to the original key, something like that. Um, I'm I'm she splaining to you, and um, but it, but it's so quick, so you can easily miss it. And the point is, if that's not something that excites you as a listener, it doesn't break up your enjoyment of the chorus because it's so fleeting, right? So what I wanted to ask is, now that I've got to it, when you're composing, what is the thought process that results in these sneaky little modulations mm -hmm. or complexities? Mm. Yeah. Um, firstly, it was kind of a wild ride to hear you describe that just now. <laughs> um, I would say, okay, so let's take you and you, for example. So with that song, um, I had that loop for like two years before I did anything with it. It was just like a voice memo on my phone. And I literally, I had a chart, like a very easy, like a very quick Sibelius chart called three bar loop guy. That was the name of it. And uh, it wasn't a song. There weren't any forms. It was literally just three bars. And I'm like, how do I turn this into a song? 
Which three bars? It was, was just the uh, just from. It was just that over and over again. Okay. Um, and um, I think a large part of it for me it comes down to like an improvisation background. So like having some sort of like vamp or chord progression and then recording yourself improvising over it. Um, and then from there sort of taking the ideas that sounded cool and working with them as though you're working with like clay. I like the ideas to be sort of elastic and not to get married to something until I've really explored it. Um, I tend to be very like, I tend to exhaust um, every, I mean, there's no such thing as exhausting every possible melodic option, but just in that moment, I tend to exhaust every single melodic option that occurs to me. That way, when I decide what the melody is going to be, I know that that's exactly what I want it to be because I've like gone in a million different directions and this is the one that I keep coming back to. So when it comes to these like, you know, cool, weird little harmony things, um, I think it's it's a mixture of like, can I get away with this with without it sounding like gratuitous? And like, will it be additive rather than subtractive? I think I, I try to ride that line. Um, because like we we can feel when it comes from a I'm being impressive for the purpose of being impressive place. And I try not to reside in that place as much as I can. But also like sometimes it just feels nice to stick a little extra little sus chord in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's appreciated. I mean, as somebody who's a jazzophile like me, I'm like, that's what I glom mm -hmm. onto. And I'm like, so, you know, so thank you, you know, for putting those little- Anytime, yeah, anytime. There's tons of stuff in this album because, you know, as I said, it's so richly textured and multicolored. There's new things to discover about it every time you listen. Um, there's tons of stuff that is just like way over my head where I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to groove. It's great. I'll just bop along. You seem to have such a handle on your instrument. We've spoken about some of the sort of, we've spoken about some musical things and fundamentals, but you're also often included as an instrumentalist by other jazz musicians, people like Ben Wendell, Kneebody, and, and others. In the world of vocalists are not instrumentalists, or I mean, even more extreme, vocalists are not musicians, are you still fighting to be seen as an equal, even though in many ways these collaborations imply that you are seen as an equal. You're simply just seen as a great musician. And when people are putting together a band, they're like, oh, I want Gerald Clayton and, you know, I don't know, Nate Wood and Michael Mayo, instrument aside. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I definitely walked around with a chip on my shoulder about that for a long time. Um, just wanting to prove myself that as a singer, I could hang with the instrumentalists. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I'd say like, High school age that mentality like helped me to practice more but after a while i sort of outgrew it but it took me a while to realize that i outgrew it so i was sort of walking around with these like you know implied in that embedded in that is sort of like uh, an implied value system or judgment system that like instrumentalists are better or better musicians or better in some sort of way than singers are um and that's just simply not true, right? Like I talked to students about, I, in fact, I was just in Siena, Siena, Italy for the past week, um, teaching at the Siena Jazz Workshop out there. And one of the things I talked with my students a lot about is like singers and instrumentalists were all trying to get to the same 
like goal. We, we all are trying to get to the same stuff, but we're kind of like yin and yang, right? So for me as a singer, I don't have buttons. So if I've never heard a particular chord before, most likely I'm not just going to be able to improvise over it right away if somebody like hands me and tells me what the notes are, because I don't necessarily know what the notes are offhand, right? But what is easy for me is if I have an idea in my head, I can just sing it, right? So for an instrumentalist, it's kind of flipped. So for them, if somebody puts something in front of them, they can just like play it. If they put their fingers in the right place at the right time, the sound's going to come out, right? But they also, if they hear something in their head, they have to know how sort of mathematically that translates to their instrument. So it's like, what is easy for one is difficult for the other. And I think we need to sort of spend more time thinking about that idea and understanding the nature of what we do and that it's just different. So like, I'm just really passionate about trying to help singers um, have more compassion for themselves because it's hard. Like we're, we're, we can sort of be beat down and then in turn beat ourselves down. Um, and it's really just like counterproductive and unnecessary. So that was a, a, a very long way of saying, um, yes, I've dealt with that and I'm trying to not deal with it as much now, if that makes sense. Oh, well, firstly, nothing's longer than my preamble to get to each question <laughs> of this interview. But secondly, I think it's very comforting for not just young or not just student um, jazz vocalists, but any any vocalist at any point in their sort of development uh, to hear you say that because it kind of seems like you've been invited to the party mm. that so many singers would love to be invited mm. to and feel like, yeah, they're kind of not welcome. And yet you're saying, I've been invited, but oh my gosh, has this been something I feel like I've really had to fight right. for? Um, so that is kind of universal, I guess, until it becomes more commonplace. So some of those divides break down. Yeah, and, and I think it's important too to realize that like, whatever a person's goals are, as long as they're working toward that, like that is what's going to be in the cards for them. Right. So like not every singer's goal is going to be to sing crazy melodies with Ben Wendell. Right. That's certainly my goal. And I, and I love every moment of it, but like whatever someone is working towards, as long as they put in the time and, and deep thought and like active listening and all these, all this stuff, it, it's all it's all possible you just have to take it as given that it can be done and then sort of like spend the time doing it
Hello, a quick note from me, Nikki, to tell you how you can best support the jazz session if that's something that tickles your fancy. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of listeners who are so enthused by these conversations that they head over to Patreon to join the Jazz Session's Patreon page. They become patrons. If you go to thejazzsession.com slash join, that's thejazzsession.com slash join, it will link you to the Patreon page and you'll be able to find out more about how you can become a member for as little as $5 per month today. So please do head over to that link if that sounds interesting and enticing to you. There are all sorts of perks to be had and there are only two tiers of membership, $5 a month or $10 a month. Take your pick. The other way that you can support the podcast is by rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This takes a matter of seconds, rating it to be specific, and it helps with the podcast's visibility on web pages, in searches. It helps other folks who might be interested in these conversations find the podcast. Really important and invaluable in the world of podcasting. The other way you can support this show is by tweeting, Facebooking, or Instagramming about the show at large or about specific episodes that you know you really enjoy so please do feel free to give the show a shout out and if you tag the jazz session on any of those social media platforms I'll be sure to repost your wonderful praise and gladly so so thank you for listening and for any support that you may show the podcast now or in the near future now back to my conversation with Michael well, you mentioned you just came back from teaching at Siena Jazz, um, and teaching is something that you offer when you have the time. I've seen the sort of, you know, the posts online and everything, and one of the things you often lead with in terms of what you can offer is ear training, oral skills. And that's obviously something that you think is, is very important. It's played a big role in your life, and obviously it feels like for you, it enables you to do a whole host of things. So can you talk about why you think there's a lot of weight to having really good oral skills as a singer, apart from the obvious, which is singing in tune, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, like I was saying a moment ago, we, we don't have buttons. So sometimes it can feel like we're floating through outer space, trying to grasp like one speck of sand in the vastness of like the ether. Right. And I think in the absence of any type of ear training or in the absence of any type of like grounding, it's going to be way more easy to feel overwhelmed and to feel out of place and to feel unprepared. Um, all of these feelings, which like are, are normal for humans to feel in general, but I think because of the, the nature of like singing, especially in a jazz context, it's really easy to sort of let that play into the like, I suck. Singers are dumb. Therefore, like I'm a singer, therefore I'm dumb, you know, like all, all this stuff, which is like totally false, but it's these narratives that we have. So like, I think ear training is a really great, efficient way of setting yourself up for success. And I don't mean like financial or career success. I mean, when you're in the moment of making music with people, how comfortable do you feel either trying something new or just like letting go entirely and seeing what happens, right? If you know that you can always hear a perfect fifth on any day, any time, whatever, and you can also hear the bass, then those two skills alone will help you in any sort of musical situation that you're in. So like, I just think it's really important for us to have some sort of 
grounding element so we're not always flying totally blind um and yeah i also am just like a nerd when it comes to this stuff so i enjoy talking about it with other people who are nerds about it as well I completely agree with you, but I wasn't going to lead with that. I was going to try and <laughs> pretend you needed to make a case as to the importance of good ear training. Mm. Going back to the album, I wanted to ask you about your experience working with Eli Wolf, who produced it. I'm fascinated mm. personally by different people's experiences working with different producers because I think the term producer means so much especially in jazz especially yeah. yeah in the 21st century and every now and then it'll be like you know that person is an old the a producer as in that's all he does and in some ways eli to my mind it kind of is one of those people mm. and those sort of producers to me have a real oz like aura where you're like <laughs> i don't know if i've ever seen them can i even find a headshot online of them right, 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 and right. What is it like? I feel like you got to step behind the curtain in Oz with the wizard. Mm. And I would love to know what it was like. Yeah. Having that experience. Yeah. So um, Eli is a wizard. Um, it's, it's like true. It's funny that you say Oz because I refer to him as a wizard. He um, I think the thing that 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 I love most about Eli, aside from the fact that he's just like a wonderful dude, is his open-mindedness and his um what's the word i'm looking for his a bit like discernment ability right because for me sometimes when i'm like in the studio i'll i'll do like three or four different takes and there'll be these like little micro differences between them that like literally i because i'm the one who did it and the only one who could hear them and so it's really helpful to have someone be like yeah actually i think take two is the one or like it literally doesn't matter any of these takes are fine let's just choose one right and something as simple as that i think really helps to sort of streamline the process um and then on top of that like he he was really active about like sonic decisions right so like you know, let's tune the let's tune the kick drum up uh, a little bit on this song, or let's have the snare uh, sound a little bit lower. Let's use like a bigger snare on this song, right? Which is like super not my area. Um, and like everyone in my band is amazing, and so like they all have the ability to sort of have those conversations with him. He's basically able to interface with everyone in a different way than I am, and so I think it was it was really educational for me to get to watch that. And then like, we just got along from the get-go. We got together for these like demo coffee cafe hangs where we would just get together at a cafe and um, I would play him some of the demos that I was thinking about for the record. And then we would talk about thoughts and sort of the sonic landscape that we wanted to craft for each song. Um, and our whole, our whole process of working together sort of came about really um, organically. And so I, he, he was like definitely a vital part of this process. And we should also mention for listeners that, I mean, he used to do A&R for Blue Note Records and he's produced people like Nora Jones and Al Green and The Roots. Um, and it's yep. it's kind of funny. I, it's, I, I love how you describe what he brought to your project because I'm thinking those are all the traits that you want from a producer. Like, yeah. Yeah. And that and that is the role, and that's what you want it to. That's what you want filled. Did you seek him out, or was it suggested to you? You guys might mm. work well together. It was actually so random how we met. So um, Eli's wife is an amazing singer named Hillary Gardner, who's a part of this fantastic uh, vocal trio called Duchess. 
and Duchess and I were playing at the same uh, festival in um, Northern Washington state in the States. And uh, we met, I'm trying to, I don't exactly remember the, the timeline of these things, but basically I met Hillary and she mentioned that her husband was a producer. And it's like the number of times someone's like, Oh, my like cousin's neighbor's dad's babysitter is, you know what I mean? Is, is a producer. So like, you know, judging from her musicality, I'm sure that he was like, you know, good, but I didn't know. And then finally, when I met him, his vibe off the bat was really great and not like egoey. I think sometimes when, you know, you become aware that you're going to meet someone who's like in the business, like you, you sort of prep yourself for like a bit of like ego vibe. And he's super not that way. So off the bat, I already knew that I that I got along well with him. And then I like that's when I did some like research and like stalking. <laughs> um, and at the time, I was also listening to um, uh, Emily King's record uh, Scenery, which he he produced on as well. And so like that that album, I was I before I even met him, I had already been listening to that record a lot. And so when I found out that he worked on that, I was like, okay, I sort of see your vibe. Um, and then, yeah, we, I think I think he checked me out a little bit. We, we checked each other out and then we got together. And then from the first meeting, it felt really, really nice. That's a lovely organic way for it to come about. And I mean, I guess the moral of the story is next time someone cozies up to you and says, Michael, Michael, I mean, it sounds like such a, <laughs> I can say it because I'm Jewish, but it sounds like such a Jewish mother thing to say, Michael, you must meet my neighbor, his dog's, <laughs> you know, vet, whatever, is a really great producer. You'll, yeah, you, won't, yeah, yeah. You'll, you won't be like, whatever, you'll be like, okay, go home, Google, okay. neighbor's dog's vet producer, whatever. Right, right. Uh, you, you finished jazz school, I, I assume, kind of in your early to mid-20s by the time you were done with the Institute. From the outside, again, I'm also fascinated in external versus internal perception and how much we assume, especially with the onslaught of social media, we yeah. always assume that people's lives are painted in a certain way um, through no fault of their own, but it's our own kind of desire to project. Yeah. It seems that your trajectory has been very much, if it was a graft, uh, just a steady incline up and up, you know, <laughs> every performance, a tour or rec record kind of leading you to the next rung of the ladder, only upwards. Mm -hmm. From an internal perspective, what has the road to this point to releasing Bones yeah. been like? How does the reality different from the perception, if at all? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, I think what it is, it's like you are sort of just trudging along on the journey and it isn't until you like look up and look back that you realize how far you've come. And I think for me, I've always known since, I mean, I've always known since I was like a very young kid that I wanted to be a professional singer. Um, but since high school, I pretty much had an idea that I wanted to be like a touring performer and like all the things that I was doing were either consciously or unconsciously sort of playing a role in the realization of that. Um, so for example, when I graduated from the Institute in 2016, yes, yes, 2016, um, I made the decision to move to New York. Um, and that decision, you know, I was living in LA and I'm from LA. And, and so I could have decided to stay and still would have had an amazing, I would have been in in Oof, I can't speak. I would have been in an amazing place. That's so hard to say. Oh, my God. Um, but I knew that New York was going to be the right move for me. So I moved here and even maybe on the outside, like you said, it might seem like I was sort of like 
climbing up these rungs. I did a lot of, I don't know if I can curse on here. I, I did a lot of like shitty, like background music gigs. Um, some of which were with friends. So it was great and fun because making music with friends is always fun, but other of which were just like bad and like, you know, not super fun. Um, I had, I took teaching gigs. I did weddings. I like did top 40 gigs, pop gigs. Like I definitely, it wasn't sort of like a very super smooth every day. I'm like off to a new land doing stuff is very much like putting in the groundwork to make stuff happen. And so one of the things that uh, when I was at the Institute, sorry, is this siren going? It's so New York. No, I love it. It's just <laughs> it's like cinema oh, verite. Yeah. Just in case we thought you were still in Italy eating gelato yeah. and nope. pretending. Nope. Um, <laughs> basically, so so when I was at the Institute, um, I took a lesson with Ambrose Akinmusiri, amazing trumpet player. And one of the things he said to me that really stuck with me was, because I, I, I was thinking about moving to New York, but I hadn't yet made the decision. Um, one of the things he said to me was clarify your intentions when you go. Um, because if you if your intentions are clear, then your steps will be clear. So I made a list of all the things that I wanted to do when I moved here. I made a list of all the musicians that I wanted to play with. I made a list of um, the type of gigs that I wanted to do. And so that having that list before I moved here was really what allowed me to discern between like what things would help and what things wouldn't and what things were just like necessary to stay afloat, right? Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's been like, it's been like rocky, but I definitely can't complain. Something inside my head is ticking like a clock, tearing me right is wrong something inside me says i should know better i should show better i should talk to you i should i could i would i should i would i should i could i would i could i would i
thank you enough for coming on here and talking to us. And I, I would love to know as the world, touch wood, opens up and we embark on this new normal, what is coming up next for you? So um, the next th big thing that I have going on, I'm going to be going on tour with Ben Wendell's High Heart Group. Um, so that's really exciting. That's going to be in October and November. I don't have, I don't know where yet, so I can't tell you that. Um, but, uh, it is going to be a Europe situation. Um, and that is just like, you know, I've been, everyone in that band, I've been like jazz college nerd fanboying out since literally college. So it's just like a dr crazy dream come true to be going on that tour. Um, and then, you know, I have, I have little dates here and there popping up. Um, I can't make any official tour announcements yet because again, like obviously with COVID, everything is still so unsure, but things are slowly starting to pop back into existence. Um, I'm looking forward to, uh, playing more shows as time goes forward. Um, I'm playing the Detroit jazz festival in a month. Um, and yeah, I'm kind of just like, like stirring the pot very slowly for album number two it's like simmering it's not i'm not like gonna rush it but it's very sort of just simmering and i'm excited to see like what it's gonna look and sound like okay well that's what we wanted to know and the food analogy is appreciated as well since Always. earlier yeah you know it was like your the, the track with your parents was a shot of espresso so we're in the kind of like celery carrots onion yeah i mean it's, when your when your last name is a condiment you kind of like feel the need to always bring it back to like a food realm <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> and now i'm not gonna be able to un unhear it and unsee it as oh, well you can't. yeah no a uh, branding opportunity there missed yeah Spons same. sponsorship by hellman's next one next one yeah Get on it. Um, well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the jazz session today and for sharing your wisdom and your thoughts and this beautiful new album with the listeners. Thank you, Nikki. It was fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I look at you and suddenly something in your eyes I see soon begins bewitching me it's that old devil moon that you stole from the skies it's that old devil moon in your eyes you and your glance make this romance too hot to handle stars in the night blazing their light can't hold a candle to your razzle dazzle you got me flying high and wide on a magic carpet ride Full of butterflies inside Wanna cry Wanna croon Wanna laugh It's that old devil moon In your eyes Thank you.
just when I think I'm free as a dove. Old devil moon deep in your eyes blinds me with love. Big thanks to this week's guest, Michael Mayo. You can find his album now online and in physical stores, wherever you get your music. I will, as usual, make a note in the show notes for this episode about all the tracks that were played and any links that are relevant to Michael and my conversation. A huge thank you to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music of this show. You're welcome to follow The Jazz Session on Twitter, at Jazz Sesh, and on Facebook and Instagram, at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube page to which you can subscribe if you want to watch video excerpts of my conversations with The Jazz Session's guests. A huge thank you to the patrons over at thejazzsession.com slash join. Head there today if you want to become a Patreon and thank you to the listeners for tuning in and to any support that you may shower upon this show whether it's telling a friend, family or four-legged pal about how much you enjoy these conversations My name's Nikki Schrera and I will see you next week for another conversation with an astounding jazz musician about their music and their process here on The Jazz Session <laughs>